break in your new identity if you're a Christian? How do you walk around in it enough to where it begins to feel subconscious, second nature? You just start doing stuff that you didn't even think about. And it's godly stuff. It's loving stuff. It's helpful stuff. It's encouraging stuff. It's not self-absorption. But it's good stuff and it's just coming out of you. How do you get to that place? There's three or four ways Paul shows us how. And let me say this real quick. If you're not a Christian and you're here tonight, we always assume this group's a, it's a fun mix of people who know where they are with God, know they're not with God, or don't know where they are with God. If you're not a Christian or don't know where you are, sit back tonight and ask yourself, which authority have I let tell me who I am? And why am I so dutifully obeying that authority? Why am I following all of its rules? Why have I so faithfully yielded myself to this person or this feeling or this kind of temptation I have that's telling me who I am. And ask yourself, what life would be like if Jesus pushed that domino over in your life and everything changed? Sit back and ask that question. But don't, don't get lost when I start talking about to the Christians in the room changing and putting on love and putting away sin. If you're not in Jesus, you need to know from the Bible, he says this in love because he loves you. If you're dead, you can't change. A dead corpse can't fight off disease. Only a living corpse can fight off, or only a living body can fight off disease because it has antibodies. Paul's going to talk about this tonight. Only Christians can change and put away sin and become different people from their core out because they're alive. There's antibodies there. Paul shows us those three ways to change tonight. He says you've got to get to know the new you. Second point, you've got to get to know who the new you is becoming. The third thing, you also got to get to know all of the new yous that surround you even tonight. These other people in the room, if they're new and if Jesus is making them new, you've got to get to know that too. So why don't you stand up? That was a long intro to kind of get us midstream into the argument. And we'll talk a little bit more about this. This is picking up where we left off last week, a little bit overlap. Paul is speaking to Christians. He says, you have taken off your old self along with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and the image of its creator. Here in the church, he's saying, in the body of Christ, there is no longer Gentile or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all, and he's in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, those are all identity statements, Chosen, holy, love. Clothe yourself with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with gentleness and patience. Bear with one another and forgive one another if any of you has agreements against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these other things, put on love, which binds everything else together in perfect unity. And let the peace of Christ Reign or dominate your heart, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. That's you plural. You as a community dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish or counsel one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whatever you do, like all the stuff I didn't just list, he says, whether it's a word or a deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray.
Jesus, help us learn tonight. Teach us. Help this new identity feel a little bit more broken in and second nature and subconscious and reflexive. Uh, and help, uh, just give us eyes, we pray tonight, to see the new creation, the new person as attractive so that anyone that's old or dead would know that you're speaking to them tonight, not to mock them in their death, but to invite them to free life in you. We ask this in your name. Amen. Thanks and take a seat. Jose, I told you this was coming. Chicago Cubs last Wednesday night, late into the night. We left freshman Bible study. We went over to Lizzie's birthday party, and they had the game on the TV. I don't have cable. I wasn't going to be able to watch the World Series, Game 7. I wasn't planning to watch it, but it was on. And it was in the eighth inning when I got there. It was Game 7. Between the Cleveland Indians, who haven't won a World Series since the mid, I think, 40s, and the Chicago Cubs, who have not won a World Series since 1908, 108 years. The Telegraph was the main form of communication the last time the Cubs won the World Series. The horse and buggy was the main form of transportation. The Model T didn't exist. 1908. This is an epic, legendary game, and it went all seven games right up to the last minute. And it went to ten innings before the game would be over. Neck and neck, the Indians would score, the Cubs would match them, the Cubs would score, the Indians would match them. All the way up until I, I turned on the TV at the party and watched the game. And it was absolutely amazing. The Cubs had been leading the game, dominating for the first eight innings. They were up by two or three runs. And then the Indians, it's in Cleveland, the hometown team. The Indians get up to the plate the bottom of the eighth inning. And they put, they, they tie up the game, three runs. The crowd is going wild. The Cubs pitcher was supposed to be this guy who when he gets on the mound, everybody gets struck out, but he started to choke. He's pitching, he just watches home run go over there, a triple comes in, a double comes in. The Cubs are falling apart. And you can see the look on their face. What's going on in their mind is, oh no, it's happening again. The Cubs have gotten to the playoffs before they've gotten close to the World Series in the past 108 years, but it always slipped away right when it was within reach. And in Cleveland Stadium, in the bottom of the eighth inning, they are literally watching their lead vanish with every batter. They're demoralized. They're starting to make errors. You can see that the, the pitchers are getting changed out. The manager keeps walking to the mound. And they have a commercial break. I go to the restroom, I come back, and there's like 30 groundsmen on the field pulling a gigantic cart over the field. And I'm like, what is happening? The game isn't over. It's tied. It's the ninth inning. This is legendary. It's literally down to the wire. Why are these men on the field with a tarp? Then they pan up to the lights, and you see it is pouring rain. There's lightning everywhere. And the announcer comes on and says, there's a rain delay. They put up a picture of the radar on the screen. There's this huge, gigantic thunderstorm right over the stadium. So the Indians go to their locker room. The Cubs go to their locker room. And the game is delayed for who knows how long. Ended up being 30 minutes. When the teams come back out of their clubhouses after that 30-minute rain delay, the Cubs are at bat, top of the ninth inning. Game is tied. They have been choking the last time they were on the field, falling apart. And I don't remember the exact sequence, but the first, uh, the first batter gets on base. 
Second batter, I think, hits a triple or something. They advance. Someone steals home eventually. They put two more points, two more runs on the board. They're up by two runs. Home team always bats last. So it's in the bottom, actually, the 10th inning. Not the ninth. Bottom of the 10th inning, Cleveland gets up. First batter strikes out. He's swinging for the fences. He misses big time. This pitcher knows what he's doing. He looks confident. Morale's coming back. Second pitcher, second batter comes up. Pop flies out. Third batter, last out. Game seven of the World Series. It's been 108 years for one team. 60-something years for the other team. Last batter at bat. Couple of balls, couple of strikes. He swings on the last pitch. He hits this thing. It's good contact. Slams it right up through past the pitcher into the infield. I think second baseman or shortstop gets down, stops the ball. The camera's on the guy running the first. He's almost there. Shortstop throws the first. He's out. Cubs win. Words that haven't been spoken since the telegraph age were spoken. The Cubs have won the World Series. And grown men were weeping. The dugout empties. Everybody's tackling each other. Everybody's on top of each other. They got the brand new hats, the new shirts. Cubs, World Series champions. The reason I tell you that story is not so that you would know that the Cubs won or how they won. The reason I tell you that story with this passage is so that you'll know why the Cubs won. You know what happens after any... Professional sports league after the championship game, right? Champagne's going off, people got the shirts, they're tackling each other, they're just crying. And you have all these little annoying reporters in there jamming a microphone in the MVP space or something. So they're doing that last Wednesday night of saying, the question that everybody's getting asked is, what turned it around? Because y'all were losing, you would have lost the game if the rain delay hadn't happened. Because the momentum had shifted, the Indians were going to run it. What happened in that Locker room. How did y'all come out a totally different team? Every single guy they interviewed said Jason Hayward. Jason Hayward is the reason we won the game tonight. Jason Hayward's one of the older guys on the team. You see a picture of him, he just looks older. He's been around the block a lot of times. He's an outfielder. He got to the dugout, or got to the locker room during that 30-minute rain delay, and he sees just these dejected, demoralized Chicago Cubs Living like they had the previous 108 years where they were losers. They always lost. They always botched it. And he called a team meeting. And this is like going to be one of those legendary pep talks in the locker room. Because he said, who is playing out there? That's not the team. Those aren't the Chicago Cubs that were just playing the past two innings. The Chicago Cubs are the winningest team in baseball. They have the most solid record this season. They've won two rounds of playoffs up to this point. We won this game. We're winning this game. Who's out there playing now? He said, look at your chest. Look at the name on your chest. We're Chicago Cubs. And this year we win. And they went back out on the field. And once someone told those guys who they were, they knew what to do. That was the point of last week. Once you know who you are, you know what to do. They went out there and they played like the scores of games they had been playing since April. And they won by a lot. All because someone stood up in the locker room in the midst of them living out of an old identity, 108 years of failure. 
108 years of humiliation, public humiliation, 108 years of weakness, of almost getting what you desperately wanted but not getting it. 108 years of being the laughingstock in Major League Baseball. They were living out of an old, dead identity. Jason Hayward had the eyes to say, that's not who you are anymore. Stop living like that's you. This is who you are. And once he reminded them of that, they knew exactly what to do. And they played like it. And it produced results. You know the connections. Paul is saying to Christians, whether it's 108 years of failure and shame and habits that are hard to break and memories that are hard to fade in your life, whatever past you come out of, whatever sins you're stuck in now, Paul is saying, you had better know who you are now. Because you look demoralized, you look discouraged, you look defeated even though the game is still going. Get out there and know who you are and play like it. That's what this passage is about. It's Paul in the locker room with the church saying, do you know who you are? Get out on the field and remember and play like it. Live like it, Christian, is what he's saying. This is what we mean when he says you've got to get to know the new you. Jason Hayward was saturated. He knew he was an expert in the new Chicago Cubs. We're not losers anymore. We're not failures. We're not the guys who botch it at the last minute. We're winners. We're, we're, we're perseverers. We push on. We're fighters till the very end. That's who we are. You must be familiar. You must get to know. You must befriend the new you, Christian. The you we talked about last week. The neighbor, the servant, the helper, the beloved of God, the holy one, the priest, the prophet, the truth teller. You must obsess yourself with who you now are, who God says you are, who scripture from beginning to end says you are. Because if you don't, you will live out of your feelings, your performance, your circumstances, and your surroundings. That's what the Cubs were doing, right? Their feelings were telling them you have lost, you're a failure. Their surroundings were telling them you're not on your own turf. There's no hope for you guys. You're in Cleveland. You're not the home team. Their circumstances were telling them not again. Not again. If you are unclear, if you forget, if you're unfamiliar with the new you, who you are now, who God says you are now, then you will start living out of your feelings, your circumstances. Your surroundings will start telling you who you are. Your emotions will start telling you who you are. Your performance will start dictating who you are. I'm not a Christian, I'm a failure. I failed again last night, I did it again. I'm still tempted by this stuff, just like I was five years ago. Your performance starts becoming your identity, and Paul is yanking you into the locker room. It's like a big brother and saying, hey, get with it. Live like who you are, remember who you are. John Nash is a name you might remember. We've talked about him from time to time in here. You've seen the movie The Beautiful Mind. He's the guy that Russell Crowe plays in that. A brilliant, genius professor at one of the Ivy League schools. 
John Nash, for all of his brilliance, just this unprecedented mathematician, uh, had schizophrenia, which meant he never knew who John Nash was. He never knew who the real me was. Are these voices the real me? Is this real? Is this true? Or is the other voice in my head arguing with that voice the real me? The new me. He never knew who he was, and his life came to a grinding halt. Until, as we'll see in a little bit, his community, the friends around him, stepped in and did what his mind couldn't do for him. John, that's not you. This is you. You have to know the new you, and you have to distinguish it from the old you. You have to know, in a sense, think about cancer. Medication that actually cures people from cancer has to be able to distinguish between healthy cells and bad cells. What belongs to the disease and what belongs to you? Getting to know the new you means getting to know what is old and dead and should be done away with and put away with and run from, and what is new and should be fostered and cultivated and embraced and deepened in you. That's what Paul is saying here. Again, if you forget this, you'll start living out of some other story. My grass in my backyard has been a two-year effort to get it to look like a lawn. What I've noticed is this. There are some patches of my backyard that are so thick, the sod is so thick and rich and green that there is no space for weeds to grow. Weeds never grow in the thick, lush, green patches. Goatheads and weeds always grow in all the bare speck spots where there is no grass, where it's very thin, where sun and water and space is there for them to grow. And no matter how many times I kill them with Roundup and other stuff, they keep coming back because the conditions are perfect. Where you are most certain about who you are, who the new you is, is like the thick, green, lush piece of grass. There's no room for false identities to grow in there. There's no room for you to get caught up in other stuff. There's just not space for it. There's not nutrients to, to nourish that. Where the grass in your heart, where your, your sense of your own identity, your own, your own sense of who you are as a Christian, where that is weakest, where you have the loosest grip on it, where you're most forgetful, that's where the weeds grow. That's where the lies come in. That's where you start pursuing all these other shadows that are never the substance, they're never solid, they leave you with nothing but air. You must know the new you. Let me get really practical. You must know the new you in a really specific street level, on the ground, real life way. As specific as this, if God says that you are free, you can't just stop with, okay, I know that the new me is free, like I'm not a slave to sin. You have to imagine, you have to take your mind, your creativity to the place of saying, well, what does it mean that I'm free? What it means is I get to say no now for the first time. I don't have to listen to temptation order me around like a little poodle. Because I'm alive now and I have a say in the matter. It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. You're always going to win that battle. It means you get to have the battle. So you have to imagine now what the battle's going to be. If your new identity in Christ is that you are a neighbor, you can't just leave it there. Okay, I'm a neighbor. I'm a friend of people. You have to imagine like Tuesday nights at RUF. What does it mean that I'm a neighbor? 
What does it mean that I'm the friend to other people? It means I walk into the room and I say, who can I befriend? Whose name can I commit to remembering? Who can I go talk to instead of sitting there waiting, wondering who's going to be a friend to me? Your identity changed. Be imaginative. Follow these things to their logical conclusions. What does it mean? What does it look like that you're new in specific, tangible ways? The second thing we learn here is that you're not one-dimensional. Christians are not one-dimensional people. It's not like you weren't a Christian, now you are, or you were dead and now you're alive, or you weren't forgiven, now you are, or you were a slave and now you're free. You're not just a new person. You are becoming newer every day. This is verse 10. Paul says this. Put on your new nature and be, put on your new nature, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Which means you're not just this one-dimensional, super churchy, super spiritual person now. You are a three-dimensional, in motion, becoming someone, developing, being cultivated, being mature, growing, pushing the boundaries kind of person. That's who you are now. You're three-dimensional. You're complicated. You're complex. And your renewal is like ripples rippling into every little nook and cranny of your life. Specific areas. Areas you never thought the gospel ever had anything to do with. You're not just a new person. You're a being-renewed person. Which means there's parts of you that still feel very old, very dead, very unfamiliar and uncomfortable. Very clunky and clumsy. But you get to take part because Paul says you are being made new. You are becoming something too. There's process to this, which means there's patience for you from God. This is gradual. You are someone in Jesus and you are every day becoming more and more who you already are in him. That's what it means that we are being renewed, present tense in his image. This is what everything in verse 12 through 15 is talking about. This is who you are becoming. I get it. We're not perfectly kind or holy people. We're not perfectly forgiving people. We're not perfectly compassionate people or humble people or gentle people or patient people. But you are becoming that. And you have to know who you're becoming as well, not just who you already are, but who you are becoming. This is the way we parent Eli. Eli is Eli now. He is someone, and he is becoming someone. Same with Addy, same with any kid. Your parents, if they were going to love you well and help you grow, have to parent the current you and the future you at the same time. This morning, Anna was gone for 30 minutes in the morning, so I watched Eli and Addy before coming into work. Eli has started potty training two days ago. He wears underwear now. In the space of 15 minutes, Eli pooped in his underwear, peed in his underwear 10 minutes after pooping in him. And then I was working at the table and I look up and there's a puddle this big on the tile floor right by me. I'm like, what is that? Where did that come from? Because I'd already changed him and cleaned him up. Anna warned me before she left, don't get angry if he messes up potty training because that messes up the process. So I was frustrated. <laughs> I was like, Eli, get, okay, when you have to go poo-poo, you run to the potty and you sit down and did you go poo-poo? Not in your diet, not in your underwear. 
But what tempered my frustration in that moment was remembering who Eli was becoming. If I had just seen the Eli who is now and not what he's becoming next week or next month when he matures and grows in this, if I just saw him for who he was in the moment, there would be great cause for anger there. How did you do this? Don't you get the concept? We've been over this like 20 times in the past two days. But because I saw Eli as he was now and Eli who he's becoming, it enabled me to be patient with him. This is what Paul's talking about with the very last point, which is where we end. You must know who the people around you are becoming. Just like I have to know who Eli is and who he is becoming if I'm going to be able to love him. Friends, there are people all around you who are incomplete, who are in process of being made new, who are being renewed, who are just like you, Their new identity in Christ feels like tight pants too, and they're learning to break them in and to move more fluidly and naturally in in a second nature kind of way. If you are going to be able to be patient with the people in this room, you have to not just see them for who they are now, you have to know who Jesus is making them. Because then you're able to put the little obnoxious things, the frustrating things, or the straight up wrong things, you're able to put them in context against a very beautiful backdrop of who they're becoming. And it lets you overlook a lot of little stuff and not have to blow up or respond so strongly to every little thing. It enables you to love them, to know them, to see them. When Paul says you are becoming and your friends are becoming compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, patient people, When you know that, you will be able to do what verse 13 says. Bear with them. The New Living Translation says, make allowance for their faults. You cannot do that if they've become a one-dimensional person like I was talking about earlier. You will not do it. It's impossible. It's true for me. This is true for you. You have to see who they are, new in Jesus, and who he is making them into. And that will free you to love them and to bear patiently with them. Tim Keller calls this the glory self. He says of a husband and a wife, if their marriage is to last, they can't just deal with who the person is at the moment. They have to see who is God making my wife into. Otherwise, you will nitpick her. You will jump down her throat or his throat at every little indiscretion. Every little crime has to be punished because you have no concept of who they're becoming. Friends, What does this stuff presuppose? You have to know each other. You have to be known. You can't even get to step one in anything Paul's talking about if you are not known and if you don't know people. Flakiness is selfishness. Because flakiness is an attitude of I just drop in places when all of the stars in my world align and I'm free. This is why you feel so lonely. No one knows you. And you don't know anyone. And you're not growing. And you can't grow because no one knows how to speak into your life. No one knows how to encourage you and say, hang in there. This is who you're becoming. This is who you are, not this other stuff. No one's able to do that because you drop in every now and then. I'm not beating up on you. I'm saying, let's get practical. Paul is saying, repentance for some of us tonight is being present in each other's lives. Repentance for others of us in the room tonight 
is seeing people who are three-dimensional, in motion, becoming something new, and allowing for their faults, and loving them, and knowing them. Repentance for others of us is not getting hung up on all the external, outward factors. He's Greek, he's Jewish, he's a barbarian city, and that's what Paul said when that stuff doesn't exist anymore in the church. Jesus is what is our connection point. He doesn't mean people have different personalities and be hard to connect with. He means Jesus is the root of how we connect with each other. Which kind of group do you want to be a part of? Which kind of church do you want to be a part of? Which kind of ministry? What kind of room do you want to walk into? A Jesus-centered community or a community full of self-centered people all out for themselves. What kind of room do you want to walk into on a Tuesday night? What kind of church do you want to be a part of the rest of your life? A room full of people who are all about themselves and are blind to you? Or a room full of people who are being transformed by Jesus and see you and want to know you and bear patiently with you and let you bear patiently with them? You've got to get to know the new you. You've got to see through just the new you and see who you're becoming. And you've got to get to know the new yous that surround you in this room tonight. If you're ever going to love them. This is what it means to put off the old and run from it and to put on the new. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we're not stuck to ourselves. We're thankful that you are the one who is making us new every day. We are the 2016 Cubs team. We have a past full of failure, full of shame, full of humiliation and stuckness of habits that don't die easily. And you are the one who never tires of coming to us and saying, have you forgotten who you are? Have you forgotten who I'm making you into? Help us to play and to live and to love like the new people we are and the new people we're becoming. Do this for your own pleasure and pray in Christ's name. Amen.